This episode is brought to you by The Profit Line. Now, hopefully you guys recognize that I'm quite selective about the sponsors that I choose to partner with, but The Profit Line might just be in a league of its own, given that I was a customer of theirs for seven consecutive years while running my own company. The Profit Line is a boutique finance and accounting firm that provides a wide range of accounting services to small and medium-sized businesses, generating anywhere between 5 to $50 million in revenue or so. On a fractional outsource basis, they will do all of your bookkeeping, bank reconciliations, month-end accruals, tax compliance, financial statement preparation, and they'll work hand-in-hand with your auditors, among countless other things. When I purchased my business, I noticed that the books were a total mess. The company's accounting wasn't compliant with GAAP, they were overly complex, and they just didn't work for the company's new reality, which suddenly included auditors, a bank, investors, and a board. Because of this, I brought in the profit line within my first month or so as a CEO. And fast forward to seven years later, they were still there to help us get our books ready for an exit. We used them when we had no finance and accounting department to speak of and continued to work with them even as we grew our finance team to four people, including a CFO. For those of you currently running a business, visit theprofitline.com to learn more about how they may be able to help you. For those of you currently evaluating a target to acquire, the Profit Line also offers a high-level, affordable overview of a target company's current accounting systems, processes, and environment. This analysis can be used in conjunction with your QOV project, or it can be done in advance of it to ensure that there are no large red flags before you start spending the big bucks. Again, that's theprofitline.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of In the Trenches. I am your host, Steve DeVitkos. So today's episode will again feature multiple guests, and in this case, I'll be speaking with three searchers, each of whom are at different stages of their respective search journeys. And as I have done in the past, I will again be asking these guests only a single question. That is, knowing what you know now, if you could go back and redo the first 90 days of your search, what might you do differently? The reason why I think this question is an important one to ask is because every searcher that I've ever met, including and especially myself, learns so much along the way. And as a result, we often reflect back on our first few months and wish that we knew then what we know now. My hope is that this episode will help you learn from those who have come before you in this regard. First, I speak with Paul Winkles, who is the new CEO of Allied Threaded Products, a company that he acquired only a month and a half ago, after about a year and a half of searching. Next, I speak with Dustin Johnson, who recently closed down his funded search after a two-year effort, but who is now late in the process of acquiring a behavioral health business after continuing his search with his wife and business partner on a self-funded basis. And finally, I conclude with Adnan Fakuri, who recently passed the one-year mark of his own search. As usual, I'll conclude with a friendly reminder that I am an active investor in search funds and the companies that they acquire through my firm, Mineola Search Partners. So if you're looking to raise a search fund or acquire a company, I'd love to speak with you. Okay, on to today's show. I hope it's a helpful one. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Pleasure, uh, pleasure to join you. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's great to have you on, and uh, we'll get to why I particularly appreciate you joining me right now, given the circumstances. But maybe you can illuminate. Uh, please tell us a bit more about yourself, your search fund, and where you currently find yourself in the broader search process. Yeah, happy to. So, um, um, you know, I, I guess I've maybe got a little bit of a different background versus what's completely typical. Um, you know, rather than having a an MBA and then, then being in banking or, or private equity or consulting, uh, instead I'm a I'm a CPA by trade. Uh, probably a little later stage career wise, um, I guess translation. I'm a, a bit of an old fart, uh, and I, I I've been an operator in a number of different businesses, sort of different sizes and and different industries uh, uh, over the years. So. Um, I launched Clio Capital Partners, which is the fund, in, in around May, June of 2022, uh, and it's structured as a, as a traditional fund. Um, 
Although I guess with a with a, a bit more maybe of a, of a concentrated number of investors versus what 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 you'd probably typically see, uh, they all have to have been based in Canada, uh, which is where I'm uh, I'm, I'm situated. Um, and in terms of where we sit in the the search process, we, we were fortunate to uh, recently acquire a great business called uh, Allied Threaded Products, or or what you'll call uh, what you hear called uh, ATP for short. Uh, and we closed uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, and ATP is a, a master distributor of industrial fasteners. So that's um, uh, studs and nuts, bolts, gaskets, uh, uh, things like that. Um, we directly import most of our products. We also have the ability to, to, to cut the fasteners to size and make other modifications before, before they're sold. So some, some light manufacturing. Um, and we operate from, from three, three facilities. We've got uh, the sort of HQ in Ontario, we're also in Alberta and uh, and British Columbia and and sell all across Canada. So uh, yeah, Amazing. that's that's sort of me in the fund. Hence my appreciation for you joining me uh, as <laughs> a month and a half into the CEO seat. If somebody asked me to uh, to join a podcast within my first two months of running my newly acquired company, uh, let's just say I would not be as generous with my time as you're being with me. <laughs> oh. Um, uh, let's jump right into it. You've recently acquired, you've gone through the entire search process. So you bring a very unique perspective. The question that I'm asking all of our guests today is knowing what you know now, if you could redo the first 90 days of your search, what might you do differently? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great question and a, going to be a, a great service to, to your listeners. I guess you know, maybe, maybe the first one and, you know, no particular order. Uh, but the first one is that I, I'd just be more judicious with my time and, and, and right out of the gate. Uh, and, and that's probably you know, a very common piece of advice in terms of a, like a general theme. But more specifically, I'd be pickier earlier on with which, with, with which opportunities I, I, I spent time on. Um, mm. you know, I think early on, you know, I, I took an approach of let's go, let's go to brokers uh, and sort of M&A advisors first uh, and then sort of pivot a little bit to the proprietary side. When I first did that, I, in retrospect, I, I saw a lot of kind of what I call deadwood deals, right? Essentially, deals that probably everyone under the sun already had passed on. Uh, you know, the businesses had already been sitting on the shelf for sale for a long time, or you know, maybe it already been repeatedly brought to market and then taken off market and then brought back to market. And you know, it it, it was okay to think of these deals as kind of opportunities to to to, to cut my teeth and 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 learn. But I think in retrospect, I, I ideally. I would have recognized earlier on that there probably are deadwood for good reason, and I would have wouldn't have spent as much time on them as I did. Um, you know, I think about if I was being completely honest with myself at the time, I, I think I knew these deals weren't weren't ever going to be a fit. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of sometimes confusing being busy with being productive. You know, even if it's not truly moving the, the ball down the field, um, and you know. You come to the realization that, 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 that you know, Sims from, from brokers and M&A advisors, they're, they're marketing documents first, which, which I think I always understood. But what I didn't really fully appreciate was that, you know, once you get under the hood, once you're, pa for, you're past the Sim and, and looking deeper into the business, reality is pretty well almost always worse than, than what was originally presented. So, you know, if you see a deal breaker in the Sim, um, um, it's probably best to walk away. It's only going to get worse, and your and your your time is your most precious resource. So, so I guess the punchline there, like if I have to sum it up, you'll come up with your own rapid fire filters, and and you'll be confident and comfortable with the fact that it's okay to respond with quick and and, and polite nose. Like even even in those very early days, the first sort of ninety days when you start seeing some deal flow. Paul, let me just ask you a quick follow-up question on that. I, I think being judicious with your time is good counsel, uh, particularly when you've got two years to close a transaction. I wonder how do you balance that with the importance of getting repetitions or practice under your belt, talking to business owners, talking to brokers, making offers early in your search process? Are those two things mutually exclusive? Like, How did you balance those two seemingly conflicting considerations yeah i think it's I, I i do think it's important to try and get that deal flow ramped up quick because as you said you know you're going to make some we're, we all make some dumb mistakes and you make them early on and, and hopefully learn from them i just happen to have a few where you know it probably went a little further than it than it, it should have you know you know um and i'm talking specifically broker deals you know 
me, not only having discussed with a broker, you know, a couple of calls, but also going to see a facility and, and things like that. And, and, and while there's value to those, you know, a lot of the work you can do early on in terms of, of, of getting your sea legs under you is, is kind of more desktop work. You know, there's, there is value in going to visit facilities and, and, and meeting, um, uh, you know, potential sellers face to face, but that's also super time consuming, you know, to prepare for those correctly to, to, you know, travel to wherever you need to go. That that's a huge time suck. And, and, and that part in particular, you know, go through as many sims as you can, like just be a machine, chew through them uh, uh, as many as you can, as early as you can, but, but, but be okay with, with shelving those pretty quickly. Don't, don't, don't feel a need or an obligation to take things to the second, second or third stage, just because you can. Paul, what did you learn about including investors and when to include investors? Cause one of the mistakes that I made during my search is I actually remember the specific deal in question. I got all excited about a company. I spent probably a month with the seller and I yeah. sent my investors a very, pretty well-formatted 20-page memo. They found a very diplomatic way to tell me that I was crazy and I should never spend time on this thing. Yeah. Um, and I think what I learned from that process is I probably should have spent like two days with the seller and sent my investors a two-page memo with spelling mistakes all over it just to yep. lean on them and their context and pattern recognition to tell me, hey, don't spend any more time on this because that would have saved me you know, several weeks. So that was a lesson that I extracted. What what was your approach to looping in investors and would you would you change anything in that regard if you could uh kind of do it all over again um you know and it, it's probably going to depend a little bit on on what a funds investor mix looks like but but i'd be pretty confident to say in in, in any fund with you know more than kind of you know, single sponsor type fund any fund where you've got multiple investors um they're not all going to be equal sounding boards. And that, that that's not necessarily a comment on qualities. It's a comment on, you know, what the preference of an, of an investor is. You know, um, again, I had a pretty concentrated fund, a small number of investors, but there, there were differences in, in, in sort of how much those particular investors like to weigh in. Um, but I would suggest going earlier and often, you know, if you have a SIM and you've read it and you can sum it up in, you know, half dozen bullet point email, why not pick up the phone? If you've got that kind of rapport, if if, if you've got, you know, uh, if you got a fund with 10 investors, there's probably two or three that that are sort of more uh, approachable or, or, you know, more, more, more generous with their time. Focus on, focus on them. And, and I'd say the same thing, try and get to those quick no's quickly because a slow no is the worst possible, worst possible outcome. And, and like you said, you know, all of us in the early days are, are relatively new to this, unless you've sort of come from a high volume private equity background, it, it, it's pretty new to you. It's okay to, uh, uh, again, make some of those dumb mistakes. Just just do it with the least amount invested and, and start talking to investors early because quite frankly, if they don't like the deal, it's probably, you know, do not pass go anyway. So uh, yeah. even if you fall in love with it, you're only one uh, one person at the table anyway. Yeah, yeah. There's that great saying, be, be a quick no and a long yes, which, totally. which, I, which I love. Um, okay, let's get to change number two. Yeah, so... You know, and this one, some of it kind of only revealed itself pretty recently to me. But 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 if I go back in time, I I I think I'd do a better or try and do a better job of explaining to my network what I was trying to accomplish when I when I when I launched the fund. Um, and as I mentioned before, I'm 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 you know been around the block a little bit more than the typical searcher. Um, I'd I'd like to think I've built a pretty robust network over the years. And I, I thought that I'd done a pretty decent job of explaining to that network what I was trying to accomplish when I I, I first launched Clio Capital. But in retrospect, I, I don't think I did as good a job as I should have. Um, you know, I got feedback months after launching, you know, comments like, uh, oh, uh, you know, how's your startup going? Or, um, you know, you, you got any hot stock tips for your work in your investment fund and, and other <laughs> similar kind of comments and questions to say, wow, they, 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 they really do not get what I'm what I'm doing. And and. Even when we closed on our deal, you know, I had a few people who saw, uh, you know, we had a LinkedIn news release and a few of them commented to me, oh, you know, hey, uh, why'd you take a job? I, I, I thought you started your own business or, uh, uh, oh, uh, you know, I guess your venture didn't work out and, and, and other kind of comments like that, that that just said, well, like, it, in fact, it had worked out, right? We, we'd acquired a, a great existing business, exactly what, what we'd set out to do. And um, it was evident I, I just didn't properly communicate what I was looking to do in the first place. And the, the the reason this matters beyond just ego, I guess, um, is that I, I think it may have possibly hindered some access to, to more of those 
I guess, kind of hidden opportunities, right? Uh, businesses that could have been referred to me by you know, former colleagues or customers or suppliers or even, even, even friends and family. And I think you know, pretty well everyone who spent some time in the, in the, the, the ETA ecosystem can, can probably reference cases where it was a, a, you know, a network connection that either identified a prospect or, or provided the inside track on a deal. So I guess the lesson I, I, I try and take from that is, you know, be, be clear and loud about what you're, 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 you're trying to accomplish when you're launching a fund and then, and then continually scream it from the hilltops for, for everyone to hear. Cause you, you really don't know where the, uh, the next great deal could come from. Yeah, such an interesting observation. I've never heard that one, but um, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Let me ask you a follow-up question, and it's only tangentially related to what you just said, but I, I'm so curious what your experience was. When you were talking to business owners and you were introducing yourself and what you are trying to do, to what extent did you describe yourself as a search fund versus describing yourself as something else? Because I found that when I introduced myself as a search fund, inevitably the seller didn't know what that was. So I tried to explain it and I would often watch their eyes glaze over. And I kind of felt yeah. as if I lost the meeting. As a result, I then experimented with introducing myself as an entrepreneur who's looking to buy a business. And I yeah. found that that just resonated uh, much more cleanly. Um, I'm curious what your experience was in terms of how you described what you were doing to business owners. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it is and it is different uh, versus versus the, the the sort of M and A community where you can say I'm a search fund and they get it and they either you know uh, uh, enjoy dealing with search funds or they don't and you can and you can move from there. But with, with the with the business owners, I mean, I think there's always value in 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 um, um, you know showing that you're 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 one of their kind, right? That the that there's a a, a natural natural kinship there um, for 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 anyone with a fund where where they do have a decent depth and breadth of operating experience i i would almost probably lead with that right and and you know you can share war stories of um uh you know times you've struggled to make payroll or you were trying to grow the business or uh you know trying to get bank financing to expand or you, know, you lost a customer any any things like that and, and you know, it doesn't have to be in kind of a a salesy way but really just a way to build rapport and give them a a, a greater sense of comfort that you know when they hand the keys over if they hand the keys over that um uh, you know, you have a decent grasp of what you're doing, and 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 you know, you you know what it's like to 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 be uh, uh, no pun intended in the trenches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, last but not least, change number three. Yeah. Um. So you know, and, and this one, I, I have a, sort of had a hard time trying to encapsulate it in a, a single sentence, but but you know, really that searching for a business to acquire is a really bizarre period of time from a like a socialization standpoint from a like a personal standpoint um and i think that's particularly true for those of us who operate funds as as a solo principal right uh, as opposed to having a partner um really from from day one maybe day pre-day zero there there's some pretty long periods of isolation you know, kind of days on end where where um you you have only very superficial conversations day to day with you know, brokers or proprietary prospects or you know, interns who are helping you out. And, and for those of us who spent their careers working in teams where you're, you're regularly speaking with colleagues and having ongoing conversations about hap what's happening in their lives beyond just, you know, what's in the office or, you know, grabbing lunch with customers or suppliers, that that's a really big shift. And, and, and maybe COVID gave us all a little bit more of a taste of isolation, but, but, you know, even at the height of COVID, I, I was still constantly on Zoom and Teams calls with colleagues and partners, and there was always the usual chit chat and and and, and water cooler talk, even even if it took place in more of a, a you know digital setting. But you know that plus the 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 proprietary side of searching also includes some really bizarre social dynamics. Like when you when you boil it down to its essence, you know direct outreach to business owners is actually a really strange interaction. Right. Uh, uh, you know, you pick up the phone, send an email, meet them in person. You know, hey, my my name's Paul. We don't know each other. Uh, I know, you know, only a very little bit about your business. You know, and this business is a thing that's probably intimately important to you. It's like another child or an extension of yourself. Um, you know, and you 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 may have little interest even selling your business. But, you know, how about you sell it to me? And, and you know, I, I don't think I had appreciation for just how peculiar an interaction that 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 could be. But yet, you know, it became a conversation I'd have 
all the time. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I have a tidy, precise piece of advice to glean from this early days observation, but I, I guess I'm, I'm simply raising it kind of as a point to be aware of and to, and to watch out for. Um, and, and kind of allow yourself more normal social time with friends, like uh, try and take vacations, maintain your social hobbies, stay in contact with others who've raised funds and, and are in the same boat. And, and look, I, as I said before, I had a great set of investors, you know, always able to listen and give advice and be sounding boards. And while that isn't exactly the same as, as the chit chat, most of us are, are probably used to from, from working in teams for years, it, it, it definitely helps. So I, I guess the takeaway is to surround yourself with good people because you know there is a, a, an element of isolation to this this process. So you know friends and family, investors you genuinely like, uh, uh, you know just have a, a a good good make sure you have a good support network around you. Mm -hmm. Such an important point. Um, you know people um, often intuitively understand that it's a very lonely process for solo searchers, but what people what it, what is less intuitive is can also be lonely with a partner. I mean, perhaps it's less lonely, but you know, instead of a single person feel lonely, the duo um, themselves can feel lonely. And it doesn't preclude the importance of friends and family and peer networks and investors and mentors. So I think that's yep. um, really, really well said. And ultimately, you know, some of the stuff that you think about when your head hits the pillow at night, um, you're not necessarily worrying about should I get fixed rate debt or floating rate debt? You're, you're worried about <laughs> these types of things. So yeah, yeah. Um, I appreciate that sentiment. Uh, Paul, we really appreciate your time today. Um, I know you've been uh, in the CEO seat for, for a month and a half. So you've obviously figured out everything that you're going to do and oh, yeah. the investment case. I'm sure you're well ahead of base case already. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Steve. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. This episode is brought to you by Oberly Risk Strategies. Now, some of you likely know Oberly is the insurance brokerage and insurance diligence provider for the search fund community and has been trusted by search investors, lenders, searchers, and CEOs for over a decade now. The company is led by August Felker, himself a two-time successful searcher, both within the funded and self-funded models. He personally runs Oberly's dedicated search fund practice that works with searchers across the entire diligence, purchase, and post-close process. Their due diligence offering, which is 100% free of charge, by the way, will assess the pros and cons of your target company's insurance program and will summarize any potential coverage gaps, the pro forma insurance pricing, and the program structure changes needed for closing. At or shortly after closing, they will then execute on all of those findings on your behalf. In nine out of every 10 client engagements, they're able to either reduce spend or improve coverage, all in such a way that the searcher or CEO can focus on other things while Oberly handles all things insurance for them. Oberly has serviced over 900 customers across a decade of operation and has an NPS score that puts them at the top of their industry. But don't take my word for it. Click on the hyperlink located within the show notes or in today's episode description, and we will gladly put you in touch with as many happy Oberly customers as you'd like. Dustin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Happy to be here. So maybe we can begin with the easy stuff. If you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself and a little bit more about where you are in your own search process. Yes, absolutely. So um, myself and my wife and partner, uh, Camilla, we did a traditional search. We started our search in, um, in mid-2021. Um, we did uh, yeah traditional search and we did that for um, for a couple of years. Um, we after you know we had a few deals in there. Uh, one of the one of the one of the deals broke at kind of the last uh, the last minute, um, and it left us left us in a, a tough position in our search. Um, so we actually ended up closing our search fund um, and then pursued a search on on a self funded basis. Um, after which we we found a have found a deal, a smaller deal, um, and now we're pursuing that deal and very close to closing it. So we're really excited. Awesome. 
Awesome. And, and before we hit record, you mentioned that uh, you, you probably measured in days to weeks to closing. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed and rooting you guys on from the sidelines. So you guys have a very unique perspective. You've been searching for a while. You're close to closing a transaction. I'm sure you've reflected on your search process as we all do and thought through the things that you could have done different, things that you wish you did, things that you wish you didn't do. So getting to the major question of today, if you magically had the opportunity to redo your first 90 days of your search, knowing what you know now, what might you do differently? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. Um, so there's a few things that I mean, I've obviously have had a lot of like search search chats and, and, and had a lot of time to reflect on kind of our process. Um, I mean, I think there's a few things. First of all, everyone, I mean, it's easy to say in retrospect, what I would do different, I think, kind of, the process you learn through the process so it's kind of easy to say oh you know i would would change things um but i think through the process you kind of learn things as well that like you know there, there's value in that but um that being said i mean going back to the beginning i would say at least for myself and i see lots of searchers um really focus on like what is the tech stack that they're going to use and like um, you know, the tech stack, and they really spend a lot of time. I know I spend a lot of time on kind of thinking about what is that going to be, which software, how am I going to do it all? And I actually think it's a little bit of a it's it's um it's a distraction, um, in that like it's not a differentiator. I think probably 10 years ago, um, you know, doing this like mass outreach and 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 that was harder to do. So it was more of a differentiator. I think now like I would not spend very much time on like, what is the tech stack? You know, you could pick a few things. I think it's pretty easy on search funder, that sort of thing. Um, find out what's good, what works and just, just get through that quickly. Don't, you know, it's, it's not a differentiator, I think. Um, and, and it leads to then the second point, which is, I think at least for us and what I see other searchers is like really spend time thinking about, what makes you different? What is your differentiators? Like, and, and even like real things that are like really personal, like what, you know, how, what are you like? And, and what kind of thinking through from the lens of what type of business owner is going to be, are you going to be able to connect with? Because there's a lot of like, I was, to be honest, pretty surprised of like how, how, you know, how many messages and how many people are reaching out to business owners and, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to get their attention, to be honest, and especially in this day of mass email and all this stuff. So really thinking about like you as a person and, and thinking about then what, what kind of business owner, what kind of person um, is going to be, are you going to bond with to, to create that? Because at the end of the day, I think what, what gets you kind of in the door with the business and kind of advancing those conversations is 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 a lot about like personal connection and 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 not just personality per se but like you know what interests you have and 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 those sort of things and then and then as you as you do that it's it's really like spending time thinking about the messaging that now now you're going to do this outreach and you're going to you know you know and it may be like a mass outreach and and but like really tailoring the message to 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 what makes you unique and what kind of business owner you want to engage with or what kind of person you're going to engage with um and and acknowledging like this is the thing i think you, ha you have to acknowledge that like you can't you can't be everything to everyone, you know, to, to some, you know, and, an you know, different examples would be, you know, someone that's really kind of, you know, a type A um, person that is really into uh, software, you know, that that message is kind of going to be different than to be someone who's more soft spoken, spoken and more, um, you know, in someone into more people topics and, and or impact or this sort of thing, like it's a different message. And I do, and I don't think you can like, win every person, you have to kind of acknowledge, you're not going to be able to attract everyone, um, but really tailoring um, a message that you think is you, and really connects with someone on the other side. Um, so 
Uh, and one way I'll just say one way we did that uh, personally is like we because we did end up spending quite a bit of time on this and we think it made a big difference for us. Uh, and then we ended up creating videos um, like so in our emails, we had had videos that, you know, had us and talking about, you know, what we want and our values and our mission. And 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 I think that, you know, when we started doing that, it really started connecting with not everyone, but some then some people that like really connected with that and and, and advanced some transactions that we worked on. So. Um, then maybe maybe the last one um, I would say is also think long term about the search. I think like, you know, I know when we started searching, we kind of got in there and started sending all these messages. And you want to get the reps in. And that's great. It is really good to like get reps in and speak with business owners and just like, you know, go through it a few times so that you um, but do think like it's, you know, I think there's this tendency to want to like jump from vertical to vertical and you know, pretty short periods of time and just kind of like really, really go through a lot of contacts. But, you know, in reflection, I think for us, it's kind of when we, when we kind of deep dove into an area and just kind of stayed in that area and really started making connections and said, you know, what, we we're just going to do in, in our case, it was it was behavioral health and, and, and mental health. And, and so then start um, getting really knowledgeable um, so that, you know, you get on the line and people can tell you've spent a lot of time in this. You, you've spoken to a lot of businesses. You really know what you're talking about. You have connections in the industry, you know, the um, and so it, it's 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 tempting. It's tempting to go from thing to thing because you want results quickly and you want more more conversations. But I think if you if you think longer term about what what business you really want to run, um, what area you really want to be in, and then just kind of stay in that and get really knowledgeable, you will you you end up making more contacts. You end up getting more traction, I think, with people, even though it's a smaller sample, a smaller universe. Of course, there's that like there's that risk. I I think the outcome is better in that you um, yeah you you just become uh, much more knowledgeable and, and, it, and it's clear to business owners that then you, you know, you a really want to be in that space, you know what you're doing, and, and then you end up kind of getting more traction um, with businesses than just kind of jumping around. So, um, yeah, I think those are those are for me some of the yeah, some of the major kind of takeaways if I was doing it again and trying to get up the up the curve faster. Fantastic. I have so many follow-up questions for you. So let's let's okay. let's take them in turn. So I want to start with the with the first change that you mentioned, which is you know, spending too much time on the tech stack and the internal technology that you're using to govern your search. Is mm -hmm. it fair to say that this is an instance where, you know, you should say, don't let perfect get in the way of good enough? Would you say that that's kind of a fair summary? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, sure, some things are better than others. But I think these days, like, it's pretty commoditized, the outreach tools, and like, they're all, they're all, good you know or like many of them are very good so like don't get hung up on what's the best right just kind of get going yeah and the the second thing that you would do different in retrospect is highly tailored messaging and mm -hmm. being clear on what your differentiator was can i ask like what what was the differentiator that you articulated to business owners and the reason why mm -hmm. i asked this is because a lot of searchers for better or for worse we all kind of look and sound similar mm -hmm. and as a result mm -hmm. our pitch our respective pitches sound similar. Mm -hmm. So what what did you use as your differentiator and what did you find worked versus maybe didn't work so well? Mm -hmm. So for us, I mean, uh, looking at our situation is unique. It's it's myself and, and my wife uh, doing this together. So I think that was one thing. I mean, like, so that us pursuing this as a family, um, you know, right away there, you know, having a message that's like, family some you know us doing something together in a video shows kind of family oriented for us it was quite important that we did something that like has you know growth and 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 is a great business but also has impact like we're spending our time doing something that we believe in that we you know is aligned with our values and and has a positive impact in the world so that was something that you know we're not like that's an example i think of a message that like we're probably with that message we're, you know, there's going to be a lot of businesses that are, uh, you know, maybe it's not, that's not a big thing and they, they're just not going to be interested, but that was for us, what was something we really wanted. So um, then people and, and crafting a message that's really genuine around that 
I think people that aligned with that then really identified and said, hey, I want to, you know, I don't know who these people are, but like, I'm going to take a call. I'm going to have a call with them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As you know, in our search fund ecosystem, there is this forever debate around highly mm -hmm. tailored messaging and low mm -hmm. volume versus high volume and low customization. In my own personal experience, both as a searcher, as an investor, I think both can work and both mm -hmm. cannot work. And I don't think there's like a clear, unambiguous answer, but Having gone through the two years that you've gone through, where do you shake out on that spectrum and why? Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. I don't think there's like a right or wrong. We would, we, I would say though, focusing at least narrowing it down to areas that, like I've said, like thinking about it long-term um, and thinking about what are your differentiators and what are like business types that are going to be more aligned with your values and what makes you particularly unique. Um, and then within that, you know, of, of course, the more messages you send, the better. Um, and the more people you try to connect with, the better. But in an extreme, you know, if we're taking it to the extremes, would I rather send 5,000 generic messages or 100 really customized ones to business, you know, to, to, uh, in an area that I'm really knowledgeable about, I would take the hundred messages for sure. Right. So first learning was don't over-engineer your tech stack. Second learning was ensure you tailor your message and basically lean into what you have, what you've got, who you are. You guys happen to be a married couple. So you really leaned into that, which I really like. And then your third lesson or observation was the importance of staring, staying within one area or one vertical and I want to ask you about this because as an investor now, I've noticed that by far the number one place where people struggle is coming up with uh, mm. industry ideas. Mm -hmm. A lot of us come from generalist backgrounds, like, like mm -hmm. you did, Dustin. I know private equity, mm -hmm. investment banking, consulting, these are kind of generalist areas. And as a result, we don't really have the luxury of saying, hey, I'm someone who worked in industry X for five years, therefore I'm going to go buy in industry X for the next 10 years. So I guess the question is like, how did you guys land on behavioral health? Where did that come from? And what might you say to searchers who are having a really tough time trying to figure out, okay, I get, you know, academically how helpful it is to stay in an industry, but I don't, I don't really know which one to pick. Mm, yeah, no, it's a super good question. And like, and, and I'm going to like contradict myself somewhat in this for sure. And that's what, you know, coming back to what I said initially in terms of like the value of like the process is also important. So it's easy to look back in retrospect and say, I should have, would have, could have. But um, yeah, I do think, you know, reaching out, doing this general outreach, I guess, at the beginning does help you kind of um, get a feel for um, different businesses and doing a more generic. But I do think, um, you know, like I said, that I think if you, if you spend time and just like sit with yourself or sit with others, maybe even talk to others that, you know, you know, and, uh, that know you and think about what type of business I'd like to run, you know, what, what industries are generally of interest, what, you know, and I think for us, what that was is, you know, we both had done some, some things in healthcare. And when we looked at the search fund model outcomes, we kind of were like, you know, healthcare generally, uh, you know, there's been some really good outcomes from this. We are people, people, we want a business that has a service and kind of you interact with people. Um, and so, and doing something that like, when you think about growth is like a, a multi-site kind of execution that really fits our personality. Then, so it led us towards like multi-site healthcare and we're like, yeah, multi-site healthcare. Then we're like, well, within that, I mean, there's so many things you could do. Um, and, and then we started thinking, well, what actually interests me? Do I like want to study or look at like studies on or research on dentistry? Well, no, nothing against dentists, but it's not really my thing. But then we started really spending, looking at different things and kind of like, yeah, this whole area of mental behavioral health is really interesting. It really aligns with what we feel like there's a purpose and an impact behind. So it was actually just more of a process of like personal reflection and the things you act, you know, you like doing, you like looking at you like thinking about you like reading about you so uh so I, you know unfortunately i don't know if there's that's a perfect answer but i think it's a bit of self-reflection of like if you can kind of do anything 
um, what are the things that interest you and, you know, where do you want to spend your time? I think that's so interesting because I think what most searchers do is they will start with a commercial, commercially oriented thesis. So the, you know, industry X has good unit economics, good growth, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then they'll, and then after that, they'll try to figure out if it lends that industry, um, is consistent and aligned with their values and your in their interests. Sounds like you guys did the complete opposite, which I love, which is you started with what's aligned with our values and our interests. Mm -hmm. That will generate our surface area of ideas. And then we will figure out if there is an economic model that is also very attractive. Yeah. And 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 the interesting thing, exactly, Steve, the interesting thing, once you dive into it, like, I mean, there's so many nuances in so many different verticals. It's like, you know, for us in like in the area of like mental health and behavioral health, like so in substance use, even within like substance use disorder treatment, you know, there's there's detox, residential. I, I there's there's a bunch of different kind of business models of which some will lend themselves to kind of the search fund or good economics or bad economics. But, you know, you, 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 I think, and a lot of businesses are like that. You only kind of get there once you kind of like really get in the, the, the uh, you know, the weeds of it. Um, so it's a different approach, but I think gives you, gets you to, uh, uh, can get you to a good outcome. Dustin, these were fantastic insights. Um, we are all pulling for you over the next couple of weeks for a smooth and drama-free closing, which I know no closing uh, that that describes no closing that I've ever been aware of. But yes. uh, nonetheless, we appreciate you uh, sharing your insights with us and joining us today. Adnan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And let's start with a brief overview of yourself, your search fund, and where you currently find yourself in the search process. All right, sounds good. Um, so um, I'm originally from Lebanon, was born and raised there, uh, did consulting after, after school, uh, did that for a couple of years, wanted to be more entrepreneurial, so moved to a tech and logistics startup, uh, really enjoyed working in a, in a smaller smaller environment, uh, which which eventually led me to, to thinking about search and discovering search funds. Um, went to HBS for my MBA and uh, tried to talk to as many people as possible, interned with two search investors, uh, Andrew Saltoon and Encanapa Partners, uh, and that uh, just strengthened my desire to launch a search. So launched it right after uh, business school uh, that was in May of 2022, um, or graduated May 2022, launched in the in the summer after so July, uh, and now I'm uh, a year and a half almost into my search, um, kind of traditional solo search, and uh, looking to find that one great business. Fantastic. So about a year and a half into your search. And if you're anything like I was when I was a year and a half into my search, I reflected back on those early days and wondered, you know, what I was thinking at the time, because there's just so much that you learn um, through the passage of time and through engaging in the blocking and tackling of the search process. So I'm going to ask you the same question that I've asked each of our guests today, which is, if you could redo the first 90 days of your search, knowing what you know now, what might you do differently? Yeah, uh, so I, I took some time to think about this. And, and honestly, every, every phase in the search feels different. Every few months you learn something new. Uh, when I looked back at that one year anniversary, it, uh, it, it felt like I was a different, uh, different person. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of things I would do differently. Um, the first one is is hopefully not not too complicated. Uh, just hire more interns earlier in the process. Um, I think I think I was very skeptical about uh, having interns when I when I was fundraising and even at the start of my search. Uh, luckily, one of my friends had uh, had a kind of someone they knew in undergrad and that person wanted wanted an internship. Uh, so I, I took them on board. And honestly, that was one of the best decisions I could have made early in the process. Um, I realized that if you have interns, there's a lot of things you can do. Uh, so I actually started my search 
so that summer I had one intern. Then later that fall, I had three interns. Then the spring right after I had eight interns all part-time. And then the summer after I had eight full-time interns. So I definitely saw the value in having a strong cohort of interns and a, and a larger group. Um, so I would say hire more interns and hire them faster and earlier in the process. Adnan, can I ask you a few follow-up questions on this one? Yeah, of course. So the like so many things in our ecosystem, you'll ask 10 different people and you'll get a minimum of five different opinions. So in my own case, for whatever reason, reasons that I probably still can't articulate, I had a hard time managing more than two interns at any given time. So I had two full-time interns, 40 hours a week, and I found that I had a really hard time adding more than that. Peers of mine who were searching at the same time used 12 to 15 interns, and they, they couldn't imagine utilizing as few interns as I did. And I couldn't imagine utilizing as many interns as they did. So where do you fall out on this spectrum? And what have you learned as a result of having one to two interns versus, you know, seven or eight interns? Yeah, I, I guess that's fair. So things, I mean, things work differently for different people. Um, I it, it depends on how you're, you're leveraging your interns, I would say. Um, there are certain tasks that uh, an undergraduate student can do well, especially if they if they get the right training. Uh, and there are certain tasks that it takes years of experience for someone to do well. So, so I would say it's about selecting the right tasks and then training training that person and how to do them well. Um, so it it does it does take time to to figure out what is the best way to prepare your process, what is the best way to train interns. Uh, but definitely, when you figure when you have a certain idea of how you want to run your process there's a lot of things you can automate and that includes automating training uh, training plans or training processes for, for the interns. Um, so in, in, in my case, it's actually not very hard to, to onboard eight interns at the same time at the start of the semester because a lot of these processes um, are, are already automated. I have videos in place. I have documents that I can use to, to get them up to speed. And then we do kind of by, every two weeks, we do one one-on-ones, one 30-minute one one-on-one or so. So that's about four hours for eight interns every two weeks. Uh, and then a one-hour all-hands meeting. So you're talking about five hours uh, every two weeks of your time, which is honestly well spent, especially when they come back with hundreds and hundreds of companies that are validated through your process. So I found this to be uh, a good use of my time, uh, especially now that a significant portion of the process is, is quite automated. Another question that I get pretty frequently with respect to interns is like, what tasks should I give these people and what tasks should I not give these people? So in your experience with respect to like what they are specifically doing for you on a day-to-day -day basis, what have you found to be um, tasks that are very valuable or helpful to delegate to interns? And on the opposite side of the coin, what are some things that have not been particularly valuable or helpful to delegate to them? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm always uh, refining my uh, my perspective on, on, on this question on, or on this matter. Um, I, I try to give them, I try to have them start with some research about the industry. In a lot of cases, that research is not really um, useful in terms of, am I going to use it to, to get a better, uh, better conviction around that industry or will I use it to, to uh, convince the owner that I'm quite knowledgeable? The answer is probably no, uh, but I try to have them do some industry research so that they get familiar with, with that industry that they're building lists in. So mm -hmm. that, that takes us to the actual task. It's really about, building lists and building com finding companies so sourcing as much as possible uh, and then tailoring writing a tailored message to each uh, each company within that list um, which at the beginning uh, kind of it, it, it feels it feels a bit uh, 
a bit tedious, uh, but at some point they'll get the hang of it. They'll start to understand that different companies have different business models. So they'll see value in it. And at the same time, I'm seeing value in it because now instead of spending several hours trying to find kind of hundred companies within an industry to search, uh, to reach out to, um, I'm only spending four hours every two weeks or two, let's say two hours every two weeks to get hundreds and hundreds of pre-validated companies. Fantastic. So before we hit the record button, you mentioned that there were three primary changes you'd make. Let's move on to change number two. Yeah. Um, so the, the second one is to scale volume faster. Um, I was always, I was always hesitant to scale volume. When you scale volume, you get, you scale your problems in a way. Um, you'll get filtered into spam more often. Um, you don't have enough time to respond to owners. But honestly, when you're scaling your volume, you're getting more touch points to potential business owners. Um, in a lot of cases, we might reach out to 100, 100 companies and none of these owners want to sell their business. So um, if you're reaching out to, let's say, 50 companies a week, then you probably spend two weeks without any solid lead. Um, if you're increasing your volume, then you can you can speed up that process a bit. It, it, there's obviously different perspectives around this. You want to, there's either high volume or a high tailored approach uh, to the extent where people can have a balanced approach. So high volume and high tailored uh, or high tailoring your message, the better. Um, and it, it does it does take time to achieve this, but I would say try to prioritize scaling your your volume as as early as possible because that's how you increase your touch points. Can I ask you, Adnan, what are your volume targets? Because I know a lot of searchers, I think, intellectually understand the importance of filling the top of their funnel with a sufficient number of companies such that something is likely to be spit out of the bottom of the funnel. But uh, a lot of searchers have difficulty ascribing a number to that. So, you know, anecdotally, I've heard 100 net new business owners per week as a very loose rule of thumb. How do you think about the actual target that suggests to you, I am doing enough this week or this month? Yeah. Um, so, so it's also a moving target. Uh, I, I guess the more I progress uh, in my search, the more I raise the bar. So I, I started with 75 new companies targeted per week, uh, realized that was a bit, a bit too low for me, scaled it to 100. When I reached 100, I started, I started facing some deliverability problems, so scaled it down to 75. Uh, but then these problems help you, help you figure out solutions. So you, you don't know that there's, you might face a problem until you actually face it, and then you have to try and find solutions for it. So when I scaled to 100, I realized, okay, if I do these fixes, uh, then, then I can actually scale my volume even more. So now the target is about 150 new companies and new owners read, uh, kind of new owners emailed per week. And how do you think about the returns to increased specificity in the initial email? Some searchers will take... So just to, to illustrate two different sides of a coin, some searchers who reside on the highly tailored end of the spectrum will spend a lot of time personalizing emails uh, with a view towards getting higher response rates. On the other side of the spectrum would be pure volume-based searchers. And those searchers might respond to their peers and saying, hey, it's very unlikely that a sentence or a paragraph or two in your initial email is going to dazzle a business owner with your, you know, very nuanced industry knowledge. So what's the point? Where do you, and I'm not suggesting that either of those is necessarily correct or incorrect. I'm just trying to illustrate that there is indeed a spectrum. Where do you fall on that spectrum and why after your 15 months or so of actually doing this? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm a big believer that if an owner doesn't want to sell their business, then there's nothing you can send your first email that's going to convince them to sell. Um, so we can tailor the email as much as we want, but that's not going to change their, their, their decision. Uh, now that might 
encourage them to have a first conversation. And then from that first conversation, you might reconnect six months or a year later and then use that as, as, a, as a lead. Uh, but but the likelihood is is quite small. So so I would say you you want to tailor it enough. That's my perspective. You want to tailor it enough to appear credible that you're actually a legitimate buyer who might have some knowledge about the industry or the company, uh, or at a minimum have researched the owner you're reaching out to. Um, but adding five different sentences uh, across several emails, I think at some point. You're you're not getting value for the time you're spending, because um, every every sentence requires time. Um, you can write, I don't know, uh, takes you three minutes to write one sentence. It might take you fifteen minutes to write three, four good sentences. So if you want to scale that to, if you want to scale your volume and scale that, it becomes tricky. But it's probably good a good benchmark to have one or two tailored sentences or tailored items throughout your email. Fantastic. And last but not least is change number three you would make if you could redo the first 90 days of your search. Yeah, so so, so I guess that, that could be related to the first, um, to, to, to the second point. Um, I would say try to find river guides as early as possible. Um, the beauty of river guides uh, is that if you convince them, they can convey your expertise about an industry or your seriousness about buying a business to their network and to the owners that they're connecting connected with. Um, so instead of wasting time sourcing companies and um, uh, researching industries, you can be smart enough or appear smart enough in a 30 minute conversation with a river guide or in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with them at a conference. And then they'll be able to uh, convey convey your passion and, and some of your passion, I would say, and some of your expertise about the industry to an owner. And that owner would benefit from what they're saying and, they're, and that river guide's expertise. So it, it scales things even more. Um, the the best conversations I've had um, with with business owners were from were from river guides, just because you know you know there's a certain level of credibility, and you know that the owner is actually interested in selling their business. So for those who are not aware, a river guide is somebody who is deeply familiar with an industry, but isn't necessarily a business owner, uh, or is not necessarily a business owner who is looking to sell their business. So. The, the stereotype or the caricature of a river guide is a retired CEO who's just looking to kind of help out. Adnan, I guess the, the two questions that immediately come to mind is, where do you find these people and how do you incent them? Yeah, uh, so it, it, the answer is anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> you just have to try to look for it. W what worked for me is probably one of two things. Um, they were either business owners or kind of senior leaders in a company that I've reached out to. Uh, they did not want to sell their business, but they offered to help. That could be a good good option. Um, and the second option is um, just through through going to conferences, through going to association meetings, um, and try to talk to let's say senior leadership of of uh, a chapter of an association in your in your area or in an area that you're interested in buying a business in. Uh, those were probably the best um, the best river guides I was able to find. And and how, how do you think about incenting them? Um, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know this to be true necessarily, but I presume they're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. I assume there's some commercial incentive. How have you thought about how to incent river guides? Is it a flat dollar amount? Is it a percentage of enterprise value if a transaction actually takes place? How have you thought about providing them with the right incentives? Yeah. Um, so, so surprisingly, a lot of people want to do this because the, it's it's their way of remaining connected with the industry. It's their way of increasing their their network. So, there's definitely a non-monetary reason why they'd want to do this. Hmm. Uh, now, there's definitely. So we do sign a referral agreement, uh, 
what I generally like to use is a percentage of, uh, of the total value of the deal. Just makes things easy. It aligns incentives. If it's a smaller deal, it's a smaller fee I have to pay. If it's a larger deal, deal it's still an X percent of that uh, of that deal. So there isn't an adverse impact on the deal itself. Got it. So at the risk of summarizing, scale up the internship program faster, scale up volume faster, and leverage river guides. Super helpful. Adnan, is there anything that we've left unsaid that you want prospective searchers to understand about those first 90 days? Uh, I, I guess that's it. It's a, it's a, it's a journey. It's an interesting journey. Um, in the first 90 days, you'll probably get a lot of rejection. So try to try to brush it off, try to be okay with it. Don't take it personally. It's just normal and part of the process. Adnan, thank you so much for joining us today. All right, thanks a lot, Steve.